All right, turn to Luke 16. We're going to look somewhere different tonight. I have three RUFs left. And um, I just kind of thought about three important things I wanted to talk about. So we're kind of cutting off our series to Proverbs. And we're going to do Luke 16 tonight. Um, uh, we don't have any outlines tonight. Um, so I encourage you to listen um, and to stay with me. And actually, Jonathan Edwards, who's probably the greatest theologian and preacher in U.S. history or in the history of this continent, uh, actually said this point. And, and, and uh, um, he makes this point about preaching and hearing God's word exhorted to us. He just said, in a sense, we all think if you can walk away and remember the outline, that's what's significant. That means you've done well and you've paid attention to God's word. And uh, in, in my words, basically what Edward says is actually it's your experience of listening that's important. It's your affections getting changed uh, as you hear the Word of God. So tonight, no notes. Um, consider the Word of God. And um, uh, tonight's the third to last RUF, which for some of y'all, that doesn't mean much. For some of y'all, that means a lot. Um, it's been the hardest preparation I've ever had. And... Um, because I literally thought, like, you know, I've got three 30-minute slots left um, where y'all have to all be quiet and listen to me. And, um, no, but really three 30-minute slots of talking about something from Scripture. And I kind of wanted to leave the three most important things. And so this is the first of those. And, uh, and this is why the preparation is so hard. Have you ever had that thing about which you're so excited uh, that when someone else asks you to talk about it, so many thoughts and exciting things rush to your mind immediately that you actually can't form a coherent thought. Okay, that's me for the last 48 hours. Um, literally, there's so many things I want to say, and they all just got stuck, and they all got jumbled. And, uh, and Okay, A, we actually believe in the Holy Spirit all the time, and every Tuesday night. But tonight we were like really leaning on the Holy Spirit hard, uh, hard and uh, trusting that He'll work because I kind of just want to share with you all uh, from this passage, and, and it's very out of character for me to kind of do it off the cuff. I had six pages of notes, but I went to Zaxby's 45 minutes ago and came up with this. And uh, I ditched the six pages of notes and trust that the Holy Spirit can work at Zaxby's too. Um, we're going to read Luke 16, 19 through 31. Before we get there, I'm going to tell you what my goal is. I'm going to do what bad preaching uh, I'm going to do bad preaching right here because I'm going to tell you the climactic conclusion. But this is what I want for you. And then I want to build the case for it. Here's what I want. I want you all to love Scripture. I want you to love Scripture. When we, We've been reading Proverbs all semester, and we didn't really read much of the first nine chapters, but the bulk of the first nine chapters are simply about the importance of listening to our Father's words. It's just nine chapters of different poetic ways to talk about how much the Father cares that we listen to His words. And that's how wisdom comes. And, the, and one of the things we've been saying all semester in Proverbs is that wisdom is about listening to your Father and dealing with your relationship with your Father, namely the Heavenly Father. And so tonight does complement the semester in that regard, but tonight's also just kind of one of the three most important things I want you to, I want you to kind of leave RUF with. Love the Scripture. Read the Scripture. Be in the Scripture. Everything in Christianity starts with Scripture. If you read any theology, 
every theology always starts with its doctrine of Scripture because you can't talk about your doctrine of God, your doctrine of sin, your doctrine of man, your doctrine of Jesus, your doctrine of salvation, or the church, or the last things without first establishing what you think about Scripture because you get everything else from Scripture. It's the starting place. There's no such thing as healthy Christian life apart from God's Word. And yet, it's one of the most frustrating things we think about all the time. And I get that because one of the great blessings of what Sinclair Ferguson said in RUF several weeks ago was, I don't know if y'all remember that moment, I've thought about it a lot, but that moment where he reflected on the fact that he, had we- he wished that he had read the Bible more. It's a good thing to hear an old wise man who loves Jesus reflect on that. I think it provides a little bit of comfort for all of us because I suspect most all of us are in the same boat. And um, the reality is there's, at different points in times, you're a reader or a non-reader. At different points in times, people are, maybe some of you are reading Scripture right now, and then some of you are struggling with reading Scripture right now. And there's, and, and I want to kind of want to address those. And the readers, you're reading Scripture, and there's so many bad ways we read Scripture. And I want to help you, just, I'm not going to give you much, but I want to begin to give you some tools for reading Scripture very briefly. But if you're reading Scripture, this is often the way we read it. I'm going to be blunt because I don't have notes to keep me from saying dumb things. This is a stupid way to read Scripture that I'm about to outline. Um, And I call it the talisman reading. And what I mean by that is a talisman is something you hold on to so things will go well with you. And so what we do is we, there's there's a problem in life, right? Schoolwork, relationship, parents, whatever it is. It drives you to Scripture. That's not all wrong. That's really good. Problems drive us to Scripture. But what we do is we go to Scripture and we open it up and we find a verse that says something really cool that makes us feel like, well, that verse is just going to help us get through life, right? Our favorite Heisman winning Florida quarterback is king of this, right? So you'll turn. Things are going hard. Uh, I'm not getting, I'm going to get a C in this course. I'm going to lose my scholarship, right? I'm going to take out loans. I'm going to have to get a job. All this kind of, it's terrible. Oh my gosh, what if I had to have like responsibilities in college, right? <laughs> Sorry. So we turn to Tim Tebow 413. <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And so we get our little Tim Tebow 413 and we stick it in our pocket. And we think about it all day, Tim Tebow 413. I can do all things through Christ who me. I can keep my scholarship through Christ who strengthens me. I cannot have to get a job through Christ who strengthens me. No. Okay? You cannot win all Heismans through Christ who strengthens me. And if you read Philippians 4.13, how do I like bring it back after that? I don't know. Um, if you read Philippians 4.13... I mean, read the book of Philippians. Paul's in prison, and actually earlier in the book, he's reflecting on the fact that it's so bad in prison that he thinks about wanting to die, and he's actually struggling. Paul might be having suicidal thoughts when you read Philippians 2 because he says, sometimes I just want to go and be with Jesus because the suffering is so hard. And when he says, I can do all things through Christ through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying I can get all the things I finally want through Christ who strengthens me. He's actually saying I can go through life without getting any of the things I want through Christ who strengthens me. It's actually applied in the exact opposite situation. He's saying I don't get anything. I'm losing everything. And yet I don't despair because Christ is enough. We use the verse for the exact opposite. I don't have anything and I want everything. So I'm going to use my little talisman verse to get the B or the A I want. And we use Scripture out of context like that as this kind of good luck charm that if we memorize it and think about it a little bit, 
then all of a sudden we're going to get our B, we're going to get our, things get straightened out with our parents, you know, the money situation is going to work out. No, it might not. In fact, if you follow Jesus, it might get harder. Talisman reading doesn't work. And the other thing is magic ball reading. It's kind of our crystal ball. We, we have a life decision set before us. Those are hard. You should seek wisdom and counsel in them. But we want God to tell us to do something, right? And so you have this opportunity to go fishing this weekend or other friends that are going to go up to the mountains and go hiking, right? And so you read the passage about Jesus recruiting fishermen, right? Oh, my gosh, he's talking about fishing. Obviously, God wants you to go fishing this weekend, right? No. It's a stupid way to read scripture. I love you. I've done that. If you're offended right now, I'm there with you. But oftentimes, those are the ways we kind of, some of the ways we read Scripture poorly. We want it to be our good luck charm to make, to actually kind of help us get our idols in some ways. Um, Or we want it to be our guidebook to tell us how to make decisions in life. And you see, the real reason we read Scripture poorly is not because, simply because we read it that way, but what's underneath both of those ways of reading Scripture is we're reading it selfishly. We are approaching Scripture not in order to be transformed by it and have everything go down into our soul and get changed, and all of a sudden God's saying, yeah, those are the things I don't care about. Here's what I really care about. Here's what's real, and here's what's true. I don't kind of give a rip about these things you're panicking about. And utterly changing the way we look at reality, no, what we do is we go to Scripture and we have what we want, and we ask Scripture how how we can get what we want. We read it selfishly, and so it's confusing to us. And then if there's, so those are the readers, and then there are the non-readers. And we all struggle, we've all been in both of these camps at different points. And non-readers, I really get it, like, one of the reasons we don't read is because it just doesn't feel relevant, right? You read weird stuff about this really overweight guy getting stabbed and the sword going so far into his belly that the guy's stomach gets enveloped by his fat. That's weird, okay? I don't know how to tell you, like... I could think about it for a while and maybe come up with something of like how that relates to kind of how you should think about, you know, I don't know, sororities or something. <laughs> Not sororities bad. I mean, that's what I'm saying. But I'm just trying to think of real world practical. Um, but it's hard to, f- to sometimes sense the relevance of Scripture. And then also, if you've thought of very, about it very long and you realize all the, kind of begin to get into the ways, the poor ways we read Scripture, you also realize it's a lot of work. And it's time-consuming, right? And so to discipline ourselves to read it, it's, it's just difficult. And so those might be some of the reasons we don't read it, but kind of like the first, kind of like the readers, there's actually a reason underneath both of those. Because that really kind of sits underneath and is the foundation of both of those. And this is what's true of both, uh, really of the non-readers. And, and, and this is all of us. Um, when your crush, you know, some, many of y'all heard this illustration, when your crush sends you a Facebook message, what do you do? You read it immediately because you're crazy about that person, right? Everybody you love, when they text you or email you or message you, guess what you do? You read what they write to you. So why don't you read Scripture? Because we don't love Jesus. That's why we don't love Scripture. You invest yourself in everything that you love, whether it's FIFA whether it's your own body, whatever it is, the reason we don't invest ourselves in Scripture is because we don't care what Jesus has to say to us. You really need to be okay with saying that about yourself. There's healing for you, and actually you'll experience forgiveness to a sweeter degree, and you'll begin to love Jesus when you admit, I don't read his Bible because I don't really care what Jesus has to say to me. 
And that's why we don't read it. Luke 16, 19 through 31 teaches us about Scripture. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who was feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed, in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. This is where I want us to camp out tonight. And he said, Then I beg, Father, beg of you, Father, to send him... Lazarus, to my father's house, I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham says to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, teach us from your word about your word. This is something we're confused about. We don't read very much, and we don't actually understand how to engage it or be transformed by it. But your Holy Spirit is faithful, and your word is powerful. And we pray that those two things would be present with us now and work in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Y'all noticed in the... um, Facebook announcement, I put a picture of William Wallace up there and made this reference to Braveheart. And um, I actually saw Braveheart in theaters, first R-rated movie in theaters for me. It was amazing. And um, I can't remember when that was, maybe middle school for me. Anyways, this is what I remember about the next kind of period in my life. And some of y'all had this experience with Gladiator, some people more recently with Taken. Um, (laughs) Go with me. I remember going to bed at night, and, and I know everybody's done this, but you don't want to admit it. You try to manufacture the dreams you're going to have. You're like, if I think about this hard beforehand, I'll get to dream about this, and it'll be awesome, right? And I would go to bed fantasizing about living out the William Wallace life, you know, being this, like, great sword-bearing, kilt-wearing, like, fighter for justice and righteousness and love and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's amazing. Y'all have had this experience. I know I'm not the only one. (laughs) But I would go to bed fantasizing about it, hoping to dream like I was in a situation like his. Well, okay, this is, need some audience participation right here. Girls, what's the movie for you? Come on. Some honesty, some openness. I always say The Notebook. (laughs) Come on, Titanic. Okay. Braveheart. Braveheart. Awesome. But we encounter great stories, and one of the great things about great stories is the way they draw you in and you long to be a part of them. And that kind of tells us two things about ourselves. First of all, we have a longing to be a part of a great story. And secondly, we're really disappointed with the story we're living. 
Otherwise, we wouldn't have that longing. We really long to be part of something epic. That, that's not bad. That's good. But also what that means is that we don't feel like we're a part of something epic. We're actually disappointed with the story that we're telling. We're frustrated with the mundaneness of our story. Okay, this is what Scripture is. Scripture is the true story of the way the world really is. And you can't get in on this story unless you're reading it, meditating upon it, laying it upon your heart and upon your mind. This is the true epic story of all of creation from the beginning to the end. We all think our life started when we were born. It doesn't. This is saying, no, here's the bigger story. It's actually very narcissistic to think things started when you were born. But that's oftentimes the way we, begin. we, we kind of think about life. This is the epic story of which you are a part. And we desperately need a better story than the ones we're living. That's what the rich man, that's what he realizes in hell. That's what he's understanding kind of while he's in hell. He gets there and realizes he believes certain things about the nature of reality. Jesus knows he's speaking to a certain context. At this point in time, and this is true throughout all the history of many religions, people thought, oh, if you're wealthy, then you have pleased God. If you're wealthy, that's a result of the fact that you've pleased God. This is true at this time. This is the way the Jews would have thought in the first century. And Jesus knows he's speaking into this situation. That's why he's choosing these characters this way. And so the rich man, what people would do is they would look at this rich man who has these great feasts, and they would think instinctually, he's obviously a great and noble man. Because look what he has. And, we'd, and they would look at poor people. We actually still do this today. They would look at poor people and say, like, obviously there's something deeply immoral and wrong about them. Otherwise, God wouldn't have treated them this way. Right? Okay, we do this now. You have, everybody in this room has people they look at and think, like, they have a boyfriend or girlfriend who's great. They're getting great grades. School works easier for them. Like, God just likes them better. We all still think that. And we all encounter, drive by, don't give money to, homeless people on five points. And when we don't do that, we all think, you deserve where you are. You're poor, and you earned it. God gave it to you, because you deserved it. We still actually think this way as well. What Scripture is doing right here is he's saying, the way you think the world operates is not at all the way the world operates. Because Jesus is flipping the tables and he's utterly confusing the Jews when he says, okay, now they get to the afterlife and Lazarus is with Abraham and with God and the poor man's in hell. Okay, this is what Scripture is. It's kind of amazing and beautiful, but this is really true and I'm not forcing it. Two of my five all-time favorite movies are illustrations tonight. Every time you open Scripture, this is really what's happening. You're being offered the blue pill and the red pill. <laughs> really and truly. Everybody got that? In the Matrix, um, Morpheus meets Neo while he's in the Matrix, which is not the real world, but appears like the real world. It's a little bit cleaner and easier to deal with, but it's not true. And he says, I have the truth. It's harder, it's more difficult, life is harsh. And what's going to happen is you're going to look back at this shiny world and realize everything that's shiny in that world is not necessarily gold. 
And you can take the red pill and learn about the real world, or you can take the blue pill and kind of choose this ignorant bliss. And the ignorant bliss is ignorant bliss for a while. Every time you open scripture, that's what's happening. You're being offered the blue pill or the red pill. You can encounter this. You can seek to understand it, meditate upon it, press it in your heart, and then apply it. Or you can blow it off. God is rewriting. He's actually not rewriting the story. He's rewriting your story. He's saying the stories that we're telling with our life are pathetic lies. Is actually what they are. All these lies that we believe about beauty, about money, about relationships, and all these hopes that we have, they're lies. And I've got to tell you the real nature of the world. And the reason why is because our stories are lame and insufficient. And that's really true. And there's nothing that testifies to that more than World of Warcraft and paintball. And CrossFit. I'm going to throw that in there too. I watched this documentary called Second Skin about people who lived their lives around World of Warcraft. And they would interview these people and ask, like, you know, relationships have disintegrated, jobs have been lost, all they're doing, their life has fallen apart around them. All so they can play World of Warcraft. This is massive multiplayer online game. And this is what almost all of them said in the interviews of, like, how have you allowed this to happen? Why? And they said this, because I feel like I can accomplish something and be a hero in this virtual world. And that's what I want. And so I'll rather take fake heroism than the real life. Right? This is why guys play paintball. It's okay if you play World of Warcraft for like 40 minutes a day. Um, it's okay if you play paintball. But this is why guys play paintball. It's because we fantasize about being heroes and we're disappointed that we're not. This is why we do CrossFit. This is why we're all panicking about getting hurt abs ready for summer conference and all this kind of stuff. It's our pathetic attempt to look like a hero because we know we're not. It's our pathetic attempt to look like a hero because we're keenly aware of the fact that we're not. It's because we hate our story. In this story, the lie that they believe is that wealth is really kind of the thing. If you get that, life comes together. In 1 Timothy 6, 9, it's not wrong to be rich. It's the love of money that's the problem, the belief that money is going to solve your ills. 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's the desire to be rich. They fall into a snare and to senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The parable we're reading isn't saying being wealthy is wrong. It's saying that belief that when I get things together financially, that all of a sudden I'll have peace in this life, that my story will come to really like satisfying conclusion is a lie that will lead you away from Jesus and out of salvation. And if, you know, on the single issue of money, a simple test of whether or not you love money is simply this. Are you giving any back to the kingdom of God? And if you have excuses as to why you're not, what you're saying is the pleasure that I can buy, the pleasure and security that I can buy and that I can save for is more important than the kingdom of God because this is my good life. This is my story that I've been aiming for. 
If you can't give any back to God, that just proves that it takes precedent over God. That it's the financial well-being is the satisfying conclusion you're aiming for with your story. We all have a very complex picture of where we want our story to go. It's this combination of grades, of family, of relationships, of comfort. Idolatry update. iPad 2 didn't make me happy. I got it. Netflix freezes on it all the time. Even if they fixed that, it actually wouldn't make me happy. I'm pretty sure. (laughs) Y'all, we all have this image of the good life. It's a complex picture of relationships, of things, of accomplishment that you've said, if I get there, that's the satisfying conclusion of my story. Right? And the first warning from this passage is, if that's all you're aiming for is the good life in this life, your end will be the end of the rich man. Because this is the next one. Death is coming. Death is coming. Kay's not here tonight because her grandfather died yesterday. Last week, just an average student in RUF at University of Virginia fell out of their dorm window and died. Death is coming. Here's what you've got to do with your image of the good life. You've got to hold it up, and then you've got to put death at the end of it and say, does it conquer that? Does it have power there? A pastor in Charlottesville, Virginia, actually the pastor of the church that that student went to, I don't know if we should all do this. It's kind of amazing and kind of morbid at the same time. Hangs a picture of a tombstone over his desk, and he had his name engraved on it. And every day he labors in the church being reminded that death is imminent for him. That saves you from being trivial. And that forces you to put the con- the, your image of the good life into the context of the actual story of, this, of the life you're living the real nature of creation and who you are. Because death is coming for you. So here are the questions you have to answer. What is your story that you're telling? Answer the question for yourself. And you're not going to do yourself any good by giving yourself a Sunday school answer. Because this is how the Christian answers. Well, here's one way you can answer the question. What's the worst nightmare for you? What is it you that like, we've had these moments where we know what utter fear is. We're afraid if this happens to me, all is undone. Because this is the utter fear of a Christian that you find out the resurrection is not true. That's the deepest, darkest fear of a Christian. That just everything comes undone. To find out that the resurrection is not true. But really and truly, what our nightmare oftentimes is this. That we're going to be lonely. That we won't have enough money. That we're always going to hate our tummy. And we're not going to have good sex. That's really kind of our nightmare. And that's what our picture of the good life is, is to get those things. So answer the question, what is your good life? Now put it in the context of death. Who wins when you put death at the end of your story, when you put death at your image of what the good life is? We need a better story. That's my point. We need a better story, and we're actually desperately aware of that. And we're craving it. And so many of our actions show our pathetic attempts to seek a better story. The attempts are bad, but in a, there's a sense in which that longing for a better story is really right. And this is the amazing thing about this passage. 
and I'll be brief on this point. This has the power to retell your story. It's actually, Scripture itself is a story, but it actually also has the power to draw you into its own story, which is the true story of real creation, and no longer this brief 80-year story that you think you're telling where you get born, you're unhappy, you kind of work for your happiness for a while, hope you get there, and then you die, and that's the end of your story. This is the larger epic story of which you are a part. And people think to change and to have our stories change, this is what we're prone to think, and this is what the rich man thinks, that we've got to have a powerful experience, right? That something crazy has to happen. We need more. These things are not bad. They're just not sufficient, and those are two different things. These things are not bad. They're just not sufficient. We need more emotionally powerful worship. That will produce change, right? I'm all for that. The worship was great tonight. It doesn't have the power to reach into your soul and change the fundamental values and the fundamental way that you view the world. Signs and miracles, right? A big, awesome rally with a great speaker who tells us to do something at the end that makes us feel better about ourselves because we did something in it and made a commitment or a recommitment or like recommitting our recommitment, you know? We're prone to think the most powerful mechanism for bringing change into our lives is this powerful experience, right? And if we can manufacture a powerful experience, people will change. That's the power to change. Okay, the reason I harp on that all the time is because that was me for so long. Is because for so long I kept thinking, like, I've got to have a powerful worship experience. I've got to have a powerful worship experience. And I found and followed all the places that lowered the lights and did coolest music that was really powerful. And then I just got numb to it eventually. Until I, it just it didn't, it wasn't powerful anymore because I'd just been to it a thousand times. I was inoculated to it. Jesus disagrees with that assumption that you have to have a powerful experience in order to change. Listen to what he says. Because the rich man's making the argument we've all made. I beg of you, Father, send Lazarus to my brother's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. Now, he's not simply, here, here's, he's not simply asking for somebody to go tell him about Jesus. Because listen to the way uh, Abraham responds and he responds. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. And he said, no, 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 I'm not just talking about somebody going to tell them about the Bible. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Here's the rich man's thinking. We all believe it. We're on the rich man's side at this point, not on Jesus' side, and we've got to get changed by Scripture. We all believe if someone came out of the grave and came over here to campus and said, y'all, I was in the grave at first, Prez. I'm alive now. Repent and believe in Jesus. We think all of campus will get converted. Raise your hand if you believe that. I believe that. All of y'all do too. Yes, let's get hands in the air. I'm asking for hands. Yes. Hear what Jesus says in the parable. If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying this is more powerful than people coming out of the grave and telling everybody over here they need to repent. And it's no wonder that we jump from cool Trinity Church to cool traditional church to cool blended style church, from awesome David Black book to awesome Francis Chan book. Those books are good. You should read them. Okay? From good theology like C.S. Lewis to even better, more intense, unreadable theology like John Owen, right? (laughs) From awesome accountability, fellowship, powerful confession of sin, accountability group to even more awesome, vulnerable confession of sin, prayerful accountability group. We bounce from all these things and we're really struggling to change. 
And what Jesus is saying is, this has got to be the center of it all. This has got to be in and around you. Jesus is not... He's not surprised at all that none of that stuff really has the deep capacity to rewrite the story of our lives. I'm not saying those things are bad. I want to be clear on this. Y'all can't walk away and say, Brendan said, oh, Francis Chan's bad. No, no, no. His book's good. It's not sufficient. And actually, the best thing his book will do is point you to this. And the reality is we actually know that God's word is more powerful than all these things from a very simple point that we've all experienced, and some of us are aware of this fact, and some of us are unaware, but still true of us. What your mom and dad have said to you in your life have been the most formative and shaping things of your story than anything. What your mom and what your dad have said to you might be good, it might be bad. You might be trying to deny the fact that it shaped you, which actually just goes to prove how much it shaped you, because your whole life's about trying to deny what they've said. What your mom and your, what your dad have said are the most formative and powerful influence in your life for telling your story. They have shaped your story and given it to you. This is my point. What your dad says is the most powerful thing that happens to you. And that's true of your heavenly father, of your earthly father, it's a thousand times more true of your heavenly father. He hands us our story here. A few points about reading scripture, and I'll close. How do we hear our Father? How do, we, how do we read Scripture? Here's the first thing. It takes work. It does. If you mishear me from time to time in RUF, or I misspeak, and hopefully I didn't, but, I, but it's possible, people will walk out of RUF thinking, saying, Britain said don't read the Bible. Because I've said things close to that before. But what I've been saying all along and trying to say is, don't read the Bible to try to justify yourself. If the simple act of reading the Bible is what makes you feel better about yourself, you misunderstood it. I'm saying read Scripture all the time. Read Scripture for the same reason you long to hear comforting and encouraging words from your earthly father. Because you want to go to your heavenly father and hear what he has to say to you. Because he says great things. He says hard things. He says great things. But it takes work. Because guess what? It was written by like first century Jews for the last quarter of it. You've got to understand the context of what they're speaking into. They use words slightly differently. It's written by really, really old people in the Old Testament. And it, it, it takes work. And just like everything that actually you love, you have to invest in it a little bit. You can't just pull a verse out of context, stick it in your pocket, and hope everything goes well with you. It takes some time to read scripture. It really does. I wish I could give you more tools. You should go to a summer conference. There's great seminars on that. Me summer led a great seminar this semester on the tools of reading scripture. But it takes work. And here's what we're prone to think. We're prone to think that scriptural transformation takes place by osmosis. And what I mean by that is, well, like, I'm at places where they're talking about the Bible a lot. So obviously I'm being transformed by scripture. And that's why James specifically says in James 1.22, and he says, be a doer of the word, not merely a hearer, because he recognizes that we can be around the Bible a lot and not being applying the Bible very much. And he says, actually, if we're only hearers and not doers, we're deceiving ourselves, because that's exactly what we're doing. I'm hearing a lot because I go to a lot of Christian-y things, 
but I'm not applying it. And so we find a lot of comfort from the fact that I'm hearing a lot because I go to a lot of Christian things. And what James says is you're deceiving yourself by being a hearer, not a doer, and, and trying to draw great comfort from that. And he actually follows this saying by saying, this is actually what true religion will look like in your life. Loving orphans and widows. Loving orphans and widows. That's what he says. If you think you're religious, this is what it's going to look like. Loving orphans and widows. That's really what James says. And, and I've said this before. Crying while you watch the Invisible Children documentary. It's not loving orphans and widows. Being emotional because a powerful movie came on about a real world tragedy. That's not loving orphans and widows. If the gospel hasn't actually moved you to action in alleviating pain and need in people's lives, then we are hearers and not doers. I'm not saying do things to justify yourself. I'm saying go to Jesus, see he justifies you. But if you'd encountered Jesus and he's justified you, true religion moves you to move toward people in pain and in need. Here's my point. It takes work to understand and apply scripture. And hearing and yet not applying is a waste of time. Second point about reading scripture, then we're done. It will challenge your deepest commitments and it will be uncompromising in doing so. It will challenge your deepest commitments and it will be uncompromising in doing so. You can't negotiate with scripture. It's not an option. It's a waste of time. If you choose to do that, don't waste your time reading scripture. There's no negotiation. Two chapters later, Matthew, or Luke 18 is the story of the rich young ruler. This guy comes up to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler said, I've done all these. And when Jesus heard him, he said this, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. This is what the rich man did. He heard these things and he became very sad for he is extremely rich. It's going to challenge your deepest commitments and it will be uncompromising in doing so. And that's what Jesus is doing here with the rich young ruler. He's saying, oh yeah, you're kind of like a morally better person than others for whatever that's worth. But when I go to your idols and the things you care about the most and I say, those are mine too, you say, listen, I'm comfortable with my basically moral life. It's not, it's not one of the great social ills to be wealthy. I'm holding on to that. And that's what we want with Scripture. We want the path to salvation, but we don't want it to challenge the things that we care about the most, especially if the things we care about the most are slightly more tasteful than the distasteful things of other people's lives. Scripture is going to challenge your deepest commitments, and it will be uncompromising in doing so. We want the promises of Christianity, but we, in some senses, we don't want the God of Christianity. Right? I want to get my salvation, but don't make me make all of my life about the allegiance to this God, because I still want to do what I want to do in these specific areas, and it's not terribly wrong. And so when Scripture comes and confronts our thoughts, our practices, our idols, we blow it off, or we kind of wiggle around it, right? Here's one that nobody wants to admit, but it's true of most, if not all of us, racism, right? Because, y'all, the races we despise, there are great reasons, right? I mean, they're statistics. Jesus hates racism all the way through. He hates it. 
It's, it's, it's crazy that we hold on to that. And it's in all of us. Right? To want simply the blessings of Christianity but not have God meddle doesn't make any sense because actually, here's the clincher, the reward of Christianity is God himself. Salvation is not, I want to get my past into this better heaven life that's afterwards. Salvation is restoration with your heavenly Father. That's what it is. Salvation is knowing him and being known. What Jesus offers is not a pass to a good place. He offers what our souls long for, which is love and affection and intimacy, to be known, to be forgiven, and to still be loved. He's offering himself. The prize of Christianity is God himself. So you can't just say, I want this free pass to heaven. I've said my prayer, but don't challenge me in these other areas where important things are really significant for me. And and honestly, they're not really socially that frowned upon. He wants all of that too. He's uncompromising. Scripture's uncompromising. You can't negotiate with Scripture. And its challenges are difficult. That's the point of the story of the rich young ruler. Its challenges go to the things that you hold on the most tightly. Right? See, and here's the reality of it. This is going to sound like heresy. There's a problem with the Braveheart fantasy. We think taking up swords for injustice, even dying for the things he died for, that those are the only difficult things, heroic things that take great strength, right? Here's the question. Is it easier to swing a sword for injustice on a field of battle? Or is it easier to go to work on time, day in, day out, always be truthful, be honest and sacrificial and kind, pay all of your bills, love your wife faithfully, Always treat your children with fatherly affection for every minute of every day. Never be selfish, never speak harshly, and never grow impatient for 40 years. What's harder? We'll take the field of battle every single time in that. Try being a loving and faithful husband. Try being a loving and faithful wife for 40 years. Dude, that's way more epic. It's way more difficult. God's actually calling us something much more difficult than was asked of William Wallace in Braveheart. I mean, he really is. My dad used to say this all the time in his awkward ways of providing wisdom. <laughs> Son, would you take a bullet for your wife? Yeah, dad, absolutely. You know? He goes, and he'd always go, good, but that's not what Jesus wants you to do. That's easy. Jesus wants you to serve her for 50 years. And that's far harder. It's far more epic. Jesus doesn't ask you to mow down human traffickers with automatic weapons. It's not what he's asking anybody in the stream. Maybe one day, one of y'all will. That'll be cool. Willing to say, we knew you. (laughs) But that's not what God's asking of any of y'all right now. He's asking you to love your roommate. And he's not asking you to love your roommate on the first day when y'all both found out that y'all love the Lion King soundtrack. He's asking you to love your roommate in February when you can't stand each other. He asks you to serve needy people and to give money away, to think of others before yourself, to suffer so that other people will be happy, to be patient, which is not the same thing as passive-aggressive, but compassionately patient (laughs) with annoying people. Because this is his story. 
And he's drawing you into it. And in his story, he doesn't conquer the world and restore truth and justice by the sword. He could have if he wanted to. He's actually offered that opportunity a couple of times. This is his great story that he calls us in on. He fixes the world by love and by service and by death for you. That's the story into which you're called, in which the highest good is the glory of our king, in which successful living comes by dying to self, in which forgiveness comes freely by, his, by the blood of another. And the only way that you're going to begin to live inside of this epic story, which is the true story, is by reading it. Let's pray.